Zomato is going public and it really is a big deal for the startup ecosystem. Now, if you really want to understand the Zomato journey, you need to look at it from a lens that goes beyond what happened in the last one or two years. The decisions that the company made in 2015 and even before that is what made Zomato what it is today, right? So let me share uh, this very interesting conversation which I had with Dipinder, Zomato founder and CEO at the Unplugged conference way back in 2015. Enjoy. Welcome, Dipinder. Uh, Thanks for so, having me here. <laughs> so the joke is that, you know, Narendra Modi got inspired by how Zomato was, you know, going global. So, you know, he just beat Zomato by 15 countries. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so let's start with the journey. I mean, how many of you know Foodie Bay? Two or three guys? Yeah, very few. Let's start with Foodie Bay. What about Foodie Bay? <laughs> the whole journey, I mean, you guys, I think it was more of a listing portal. Yep. Right. So we actually started in 2008 and not 2011. And um, we started off with Foodie Bay. Actually, people don't know uh, there was another name be before Foodie Bay. It was called Foodlet, like an outlet, Foodlet. Okay, but uh, but that wasn't working well because we had a dot in the same logic, right? So we we wanted to switch to a dot com, so we moved to foodiebay.com, and then foodiebay was doing very very well, and uh, I think we had that name for about year and a half, and then we got our first round of seed funding from InfoEdge, and then uh, eBay out of nowhere noticed us, right? So and the last four characters of foodiebay were eBay, and uh, Sanjeev. From InfoEdge was already like he had he had actually he had actually anticipated that this could come to you, so we were already in the process of switching our name to Zomato, and uh, five days before we actually switched our name, we got a legal notice from eBay. Okay, and then it's like okay, we don't need to even respond to this legal notice anymore because we're switching our name anyway. So that was uh, food eBay to Zomato, and uh, that was actually like late 2010. It's been almost five years now, and. Um, I think uh, the biggest um, inflection point in our journey was actually mid 2012 when uh, when we were we had beaten burp and uh, we're pretty much the only play in town and the, and sales was growing well it was way too early to get into online ordering or table reservations or do anything of those any of those things and uh, we said that there are two options in front of us one option is to literally stay in the country but launch more verticals right so n not just restrict ourselves to food do other things uh, that would mean that we had had to learn new businesses in the same geography that we're in the other option for us was that we know this business let's just take it to more geographies and uh, we thought that taking the same business to more geographies would be easier than learning new businesses in the same geography and, and and in hindsight, that actually turned out like to be a good idea. And um, a funny thing happened was that we launched in Dubai in September 2012. And um, in about six months of our presence in Dubai, we started getting more traffic than the population of Dubai. Okay, and uh, we actually break, we actually broke even in Dubai as well. Of course, at a low cost base. Now we are not breaking even anymore. But but that at that point in time uh, we did. And um, 
that actually gave us the false confidence that will work in pretty much any market that we'll go to. Okay, and uh, we went nuts after maybe ten country launches in about six months. We launched ten countries. We failed in half of them, and uh, we noticed that the one size fits all doesn't actually work when you when you're launching multiple markets. And uh, we also realized that that's one of the biggest problem that companies from the Valley have. They actually have a very barrier point of view of all their products, and they want that uh, point of view to fit into all local markets. Right? Uh, very, very recently, you can see companies like Uber actually customizing and localizing their products to various cities, not even countries. And, that's, and we realized it early on that that's what we need to do. And uh, we started customizing the product. We started winning in even those uh, half of the markets that we're not winning in. And yeah, then you know the rest of the story. So you guys have been really aggressive in the global space, right? You know, uh, especially in US with acquisition of Urban Spoon, right? So, so what has been the core ideology behind it? I mean, is it driven by, say, investors saying, you know, go after Yelp market? You know, so what's, what's a long game for Zomato? So first of all, the investors don't tell anybody anything in general if they are the right guys on your board, right? So they let, they let the founders do whatever they want to do. In general, our business is not that um, capital intensive. It doesn't take a lot of money for us to launch new markets and like uh, do stuff. However, um, if we are going into a market which is already competitive, which already has a large player, it's very hard for us to win that space because of the network effect of that local business out there, right? So um, back in uh, like mid-2014, like one and a half years ago, was when we made our first acquisition. That was in New Zealand. And we had entered New Zealand six months prior to that. And we're just not able to make any headway with the largest guy in New Zealand. This is like very, very strong. And uh, out of frustration, I gave, uh, I gave the founder a call that, hey, we're looking, uh, there might be an offer to buy you. This was, this was a two-minute phone call, okay? And uh, that guy has had been actually uh, doing this for almost 10 years. He's looking for an exit. So it's like, for how much? And out of nowhere, I say $1 million. And uh, he says, okay, done. Right? And, that's, and that's the deal. The great thing is that I meant US dollars, and he finally had to, we finally had to pay New Zealand dollars. Right? So we, we saved some money out there. So <laughs> but, uh, but that was the story of the first acquisition that we did. And uh, what we did was we completely switched over all the traffic to Zomato. Right? So it was essentially buying a monopoly in a local market, and we just completely switching over all traffic to Zomato. Users had absolutely no choice to, like, love or hate us like they had to use Zomato right so and we fundamentally believe that we have a better product than like any of these local com comp competitors and uh, eventually everybody started to like our product and and New Zealand started working for us right? now New Zealand's revenue is more than what we paid for the acquisition and that's a and that's a big deal in just like 18 months so that was what that acquisition did for us that gave us an idea that there might be a lot of these local large players in different markets, and they might be monopolies in their respective areas, and we should just go after them. <coughs> and uh, we did a bunch of uh, one to two million dollar acquisitions in in like 
Czech Republic, here and there, Turkey, we did, we did a lot of stuff. Just that these were monopolies, they were not VC backed, so the valuations were not high, right? So we could, we could uh, easily get them and roll them into Zomato. And that's how we actually gained a lot of, um, we had a lot of edge in these markets because we were working with these local founders as well, right? So, and they, they just knew inside out of the market. And that was that. Now, um, Urban Spoon actually happened by accident. We didn't have, we didn't have any plans to buy Urban Spoon and uh, it wasn't, it, I mean, we, even in hindsight, we think that, wow, we did that, right? So, the thing was that uh, Urban Spoon, so, okay, okay, I'll take one step back. We have been thinking about a lot of countries in general anyway, right? And we sent these two people, scout teams, to various markets to figure out which is the strongest player and whether we can really compete in those markets or not. So we had uh, done Canada and Australia, and we knew that Urban Spoon was super strong in Canada and Australia. It was pretty much the monopoly, even uh, compared to the compared to other players like Yelp. So when Urban Spoon came up on offer, we actually bought it for Canada and Australia, not for the US. So the idea was not to go after Yelp. And uh, honestly, we'd be stupid to go after Yelp, okay? Uh, just like Yelp would be stupid to come to India and compete with us, right? So when you have businesses which have like such large network effects, it is very hard to, com to compete with them. We laugh at the idea of new players coming into the review listing classified space, right? And Yelp would do the same to us, and we totally appreciate that. So US belongs to them, and uh, we know that, and um, having said that, we, like all wishful people, we tried to do a few things in the US. They didn't work, so we had to pull out. So. And yeah, Yelp has been trying to enter India for pretty, like, two, three years, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so uh, talking about so, you know, there are a lot of questions around uh, Zomato's uh, culture and, you know, so, so there's India culture, right? And there is a different Czech culture, there's an Australian. So how have you been integrating that? So in general, uh, culture starts from the top, right? And uh, we have uh, country managers and city heads across uh, various countries and cities. And if you can get that one person right, the rest of the culture falls into place. But if you get that one person wrong, everything goes wrong. Nothing works. So it's just about finding that, that guy on the top who is leading the team. And uh, we've made our fair share of mistakes in the past. Now we are, now we are okay. Now we know what kind of DNA that we want to, uh, want to hire. And uh, the other mistake that we used to make was that uh, for like European markets, and Australian markets in general, like all these markets, we used to give a concession to the leadership when it came to culture. Right? We said that we're never going to be able to find the right kind of people in these markets. That was, that was the thought going in, but um, we were wrong. So you can always find good people who are willing to work hard, who are willing to actually build something from zero to one in pretty much any country that you go to. I have my doubts about Brazil, but... <laughs> But everywhere else, uh, we have been able to find great people. And you know, talking about India culture, I mean, I was reading a lot about Cora uh, and several places, you know, so you expect people to come at 8.30, leave at 8. I, I think there's a lot of uh, BS around Zomato's culture, you know, so. Uh, yeah, uh, the 8.30 things are all, sub all subjective, I would say. For example, if you visit any Zomato office, you will 
not find anybody like before 10 or 9:30 or like that kind of time people walk in when they want the the problem is that once once you have a town hall or something once you have a meeting right and maybe with some ex maybe with some external people you need to show up on time and uh, that is the flip side of the indian culture that we that indian standard time is just like followed everywhere right and if you're trying to build a global company you can't do such stuff uh, and 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 over time, people have gotten used to the fact that, hey, this is, there is a certain amount of discipline required to make startups work, to make companies work. And without that, nothing actually ever happens. So, and uh, to be fair, all the noise around culture actually keeps the noise out. Okay? So a lot of people who want to come in late, who want to like show up at 11 o'clock and then work from home like after 4 p.m., they, they don't believe in teamwork anyway. Right, so those guys don't even apply to Zomato. Zomato is not that kind of place. So we started Zomato with a certain idea of uh, that this is the kind of people we'll work with, right? And this is the kind of culture we'll create. We didn't create an organization where everybody and anyone can work and thrive, right? This, we're not that organization. In fact, any organization in the world is not that kind of an organization. So <coughs> pros and cons. So you've been quite a badass about, you know, your opinions, right? So have you faced any uh, uh, challenge? I mean, anything specific from investors or others that you know don't be 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 good to people around you and you know don't be such a badass all the time. <laughs> I don't believe that I'm a badass. I think I am real, right? I tell people the absolute blunt reality of how life looks like, right? And. Uh, a lot of times people would sugarcoat stuff and like say things in a different way to people. I tell people things the way they are. And um, in hindsight, like we've, I, I've been always like that and um, it has served me well. I mean, there are pros and cons and I think the pros are much, much, much bigger than the cons. Right? So the biggest pro that I have of, for like staying real is that the amount of trust that we have in our team is insane, right? So nobody lies. Everybody's super real with each other. So for, for example, if we are losing in a particular market, our country manager will tell us that, that this is not going well. He would not sugarcoat stuff, would not have to take, uh, take steps like six months into something going wrong. So staying real has helped us a lot, and I think that's one of the key factors why we've grown so fast. So, so talking about growth, you know, scaling, right? Uh, so very few companies in India have actually scaled globally at an operational level, right? You know, when I say operational, I mean, you do have a feed on the street in different countries, right? You know, so, so what are the key lessons you have learned, you know, while scaling up? And in some of the countries, it didn't work. For example, uh, I think Singapore and uh, so you guys shut down the Zomato order in different countries, right? So, so what are the key lessons you have been you have uh, learned over the last couple of months? So, uh, actually, this is the lesson is way beyond just international markets. Okay, um, I have a relative who uh, used to be in the army, and I was having a conversation with him, and uh, he told me that the people who die when they are in the army are actually stupid people, okay? 
So what they do is they have this romantic view of that this is how wars need to be fought, and they just go in the line of fire and start shooting left, right, and center. Okay, and then a bullet would hit them, and then they're gone. Right. So I think the biggest learning we have from doing all this stuff at the same time is that pick your battles. Right? And um, if you actually run away from a battle which is going to kill you, you might live to fight another day. If you stay in that battle and keep fighting, you will get killed and then that's, that's the end of the story. So that's, I think, the biggest learning in the bigger picture and in overall context. So what's next big what was the matter? I mean, what's going to happen in the next couple of months, years? So uh, I think um, from a user point of view, we have a lot of traction. Um, a lot of uh, people who actually eat out have Zomato on their phones. Uh, we are trying to close the loop uh, on the product when it comes to online ordering, when it comes to table reservation, when it comes to payments. So we are trying to make Zomato a more of a, ut a utility app when it comes to dining out or ordering in than anything else. And um, to bind everything together, we also have the point of sale coming up. So we're essentially going full stack on food tech, right? Um, if you if you look at the U.S. and uh, and for whatever reason, we actually look at the evolution of the U.S. market as a model evolution of uh, of any marketplace. We see that there's Yelp and there's OpenTable and there's Grubhub and there are three companies like in different parts of uh, the value chain. And they actually connect the same user and the same merchant, right? So the different products for like doing different things between the same user and the same merchant. Now, when you dig deeper, um, and actually when you talk to the users or the restaurants or the merchants, you would you would uh, get to hear that they don't need three different products. They actually need one product because one leads to the other, and the second leads to the third. That's how that's how life works in general. But why does US have these three companies which are separate? That's because all these companies started off at the same time. They grew big in their respective channels at the same time. And, w and when it was time to merge them, you couldn't merge them anymore. Right? So that's, that's how the US market got to that point. I think uh, in a lot of markets we are strong in, and we are in 23 countries right now, and we are the market leaders in 18 out of them. Okay? I think we have a fair shot at building one product which does all these things for our users. And uh, it's not going to be easy. It's a very operationally in intensive business. It's not something, it's not pure tech, right? There's a lot of on-the-ground work. There's, there's salespeople who give, which get restaurant contracts. There's a lot of on-the-ground marketing and activation that you have to do. So there's, it's a, it's a hyper-local business for us, right? And uh, doing that in 18 countries in maybe the next two years, that's very, very hard. So when you guys started, did you even have, I mean, this kind of a vision that, you know, this will go so far, right? You know, so, I mean, I think it was more of a listing service, then you grew to become something else. You know, so what has been the, uh, you know, personally, right, you know, what has been some of the key uh, motivation factor for this? So when we started off, we had no idea we'd get to even 1% of this, to be very honest, right? Um, before we called it foodlet.in, it was actually the, the beta prototype name was delifoodies.com. Okay, so it was, the product was meant for Delhi only, right? And forget going global or whatever. And uh, 
when we quit our jobs at Bain, our logic was that we have these four advertisers and they're going to give us as much money as we make at Bain. Right? So let's just continue doing that and we don't have to answer to anyone. Let's just, let's just do this. That was why we started this. Here, it's a good thing, it's a nice thing, let's do this. And uh, once you get some kind of su success, then, then you plan your next steps. Right? And then you plan your next steps. For example, right now we're thinking about what needs to be done in the next six months. We don't really obsess about what needs to be done in the next five years because there is no such thing as five years when it comes to tech, right? Everything happens in the next six months anyway. So if you have a five-year plan for any of your products, it's not going to pan out like that. So we have six-month plans, and all the kind of ambition that we have, actually we pack it in the next six months. We try very, very hard to achieve everything in the next six months. Most of the times we don't achieve all those things. But then you have your next six-month plan waiting for you. So as a founder, you know, how has... I mean, how have you grown, you know, uh, especially from a uh, mentor's point of view from, you know, I mean, uh, I remember, I think we probably spoke in 2009 or so, you know, uh, uh, so, so, you know, from that point of view, you know, from to this, you know, doing international acquisitions, you know, what has been your personal growth? What are the key things that you are seeing, uh, which, I mean, even there are a lot of founders here and, you know, so you would like to share with them. So, early days, we we still used to think that um, that there are shortcuts to success right and um, but there are no shortcuts to success i think one of the one of the biggest mistakes founders make nowadays and they will continue to make those mistakes forever is think that one year is all it will take for me to build a billion dollar business right and uh, but that uh, but that that doesn't happen that way. There's a lot of effort, there's a lot of blood and sweat, with sweat, and it's not just the founders, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually teamwork. There's a much bigger team at play there. And that's what it takes to build good, great companies. And uh, I think that realization and the respect that you have for the rest of the team is actually what grows on you. Right? And um, I mean, when you start off, you are, you are a different person. You actually become more humble over time than anything else. What's your take on the funding uh, craziness that's happening in India? I mean, the amount of funding, the the not from the just from the volume point of view, but the numbers. So, funding is good and bad. Okay, um, what we think, uh, I mean, and we have. So we started in 2008, we bootstrapped for the first two years at like zero money, and then for the first three years of after bootstrapping, like total five years, we had very little money in our bank, and we still used to execute a lot of things. I think uh, VCs have a problem in general. They think that, uh, and not all of them, some of them, I'll be politically correct here. So Not yours. <laughs> So some VCs have a problem that they think money can solve anything. Money can pretty much disrupt any space. Money can build any business. Sometimes I tell them that, why don't you do it then? Why don't you hire people to do this if money can solve all these problems for you? There is much more than money which goes, goes behind building companies, right? And uh, 
what I've what I've seen over the last 12 to 18 months, and it's not just about us, it's about a lot of other companies as well, is that there's a lot of hot money in the market which doesn't know what to do, okay? And uh, it just goes to like pretty much anyone and everyone. And that hot money actually hurts healthy companies as well, right? Companies which are trying to do the right thing, they get forced to do the wrong thing because like the short-term implications of that hot money are very, very harmful for these healthy companies. So I think uh, stupid investments actually hurt the ecosystem. I mean, it's not about risk and success ratios. It's about you not even, you not even talking to the founder for more than a couple of hours before committing your first round. Like, I have seen those things happen. I have, um, I have actually like spoken to a founder. Now, I clearly remember the dates. I was speaking to a founder on October 7th this year, okay? And uh, I was like, how is the business going? He's like, going well. So I was like, how much money do you have in the bank? Said, I don't have any money in the bank. So what happened to the money? I spent everything. I said, you're sitting on October 7th. Do you have salaries for this month to pay to your people? He said, no. Okay, and uh, then I was like, so how are you going to do this? Because this is not cool at all. He's saying, I'm hoping I'll be able to raise the next round in the next 23 days. Okay, beautiful. So, of course, that round didn't happen, right? And uh, then I asked him, so what if the round doesn't happen? Like, who will pay your people's salaries? Because India, you can't file chapter 11 and get out of here, right? So y y your dad will have to pay off the debt. So you have to be responsible here. And then he was like, um, see, 40% of my company is owned by investors, so 40% of the salary will be paid by them. Like, come on. Right? So, so that's what we are funding right now. Right? So that needs to stop. And you guys have been, uh, what is Zomato's revenue model? I mean, this is a question I think a lot of people have asked on our forum, on a lot of other places, so, you know. Uh, we make money through advertising, and uh, that's our bread and butter. Uh, we get a lot of traffic, and uh, that traffic, generally, we know the location of the traffic, because people tell us that this is the location I'm searching for a place in. And we also know the intent of the traffic. For example, lunch or dinner or Chinese restaurants or North Indian places. So we sell banner ads for, uh, it's a very, very 1990s kind of a revenue model, which has scaled very well for us. It's almost sold like print, okay? So we sell, we sell presents for uh, a particular location and the intent. So that's what we do. And the, look, and the ads are very, very targeted, and our sales teams uh, make sure that we don't sell ads to places which are less than 3.5 out of 5. So we maintain a certain quality bar when it comes to ads. Uh, of course, a place can go down below 3.5 after we sign him up, but we can't control that. But in general, like um, when we onboard someone, it's always more than 3.5. So that's our revenue model. And uh, since those ads are very targeted, the click-through rate is very, very high. Uh, you'll be actually surprised at the click-through rate. It's 17%. Okay. Uh, no wonder Google is after you. <laughs> So it's a 17% click-through rate on our ads, and um, post the clicks on those ads, 
98% of those clicks translate to real business at those restaurants. So the ROI that the restaurants get out of advertising on Smarto is super duper high. Some restaurants actually, um, and that sort of pisses me off as well, that some restaurants make 50x ROI, which is, which is basically 2% of the business that we're bringing to them. Credit card companies charge that much, right? So we should be charging more than that. So, so that's the kind of um, ROI that Zomato uh, brings to restaurants. And uh, our gross margins are like 80% on this business. Our net margin is 65%. So it's, it's, it's really good. I mean, in the long term, uh, so for, ex and the other thing is that um, like in, by the first week of January, eight countries would be making profit on ads, okay? And uh, most of the investment or burn rate that we have right now is actually only for the online ordering business or for uh, Australia where we have a large team and we just set it up, right? So these two are the only like spots where we are, where, where we are burning right now. So, I mean, in the long term, we can uh, actually burn everybody else out because they're making so much profit on all the other revenue streams that we have. Which is, which also explains your focus on revenue, you know. So, uh, one thing is the evolution of food as a business, you know. I mean, it was listing, now it is, now it has come to delivery, right? So, are you feeling threatened by food pandas, figgies, and of the world? So, um, comes back to the hot money, like making healthy companies suffer. I think it's just that. And um, so, one of these guys, uh, they raised a seed round and they spent half of that money on building an office. Right? So as soon as, I, as soon as I learned about that, I told my team, don't worry about these guys. Like, they're going to last for six months and they didn't last more than that. So um, I think the fundamentals are very, very wrong when it, comes to, when it comes to the space. There's no problem in food tech in general. There's a problem with those businesses, like those specific businesses who are trying to do food tech. And uh, I think it's just a matter of time be before everything cleans up. But that doesn't mean that we can sit on our asses and not do anything about this. We have to act and we have to move faster. And uh, as soon as we do that, like as long as we do that, we will win. I mean, our basics are very, very strong. So cool. Uh, I would like to make it more interactive, you know, so I want to set the context. So, you know, uh, you guys feel free to ask as many questions to Dipinder. Uh, just ensure that, you know, it's not about becoming a QA engineer for Zomato that, you know, this app, I mean, I ordered the food on last Friday, I didn't get the delivery. Please avoid those kind of questions. Make it more about his startup journey, about Zomato's growth scale. So, entrepreneur in India. would uh, have to say Sanjeev because I know him very, very well. And um, I've always gotten the right kind of advice from him. So That also brings to a very important question on fundraising, you know. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you guys, I think till Series A, you were just going ahead with InfoEdge, right? Mm -hmm. So what has been the, you know, strategy behind not uh, kind of playing with other investors, you know, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, it's also a function of, you know, if you can uh, get the money for cheap, you know, so, so wh why have you not tried that? Yeah, uh, I think this also goes hand in hand with the culture question that we talked about, that 
we we started Zomato with a certain vision of that this is the kind of people we'd want to work with, right? And that extends to investors as well. So um, I'll tell you a story about an an uh, investor I was talking to in 2012, and it's a very prominent VC in India. Okay, um, so we're talking about the valuation, and uh, this was uh, we're at 30 million. Okay, the pre-money was 30 million, and was trying to raise 3 million. So those were the times where 3 million used to be a lot of money, by the way. Okay, so we're we're trying to raise 3 on 30, and that VC was saying. Can we do it three on twenty-five? I was like, "Why would we do that? Because we have two we have two term sheets from people who we really like, and they're they're giving us this, and we and we actually don't negotiate on valuations. But there has to be reason why you like drop from a thirty to a twenty-five, right? And uh, that guy goes on and on about justifying this, justifying that. We'll, we can bring that value. We can bring this value. I can connect you to these folks." And uh, my answer to connections is always that if you have the right thing to say, anybody will listen to you. You don't need intros if you're if you're saying something good, okay? So you can just like cold call or like blank email, like cold email those people, and they will actually respond. So none of those things mattered. And the final thing that I was told was that um, let's do it at 25. And so okay, so one step back, my concern to him was that. The team knows that we are at 30 right now. And we had a huddle inside the team that we're going to raise it at 30 million pre. I can't go to 25. This just doesn't make sense for us. The answer I got in reply to this was, uh, let's do it at 25. We'll not tell your team that we did it at 25. OK? What does that even mean? Right? So. I mean, we had an option to go with multiple investors like in all these rounds, but we're just comfortable with InfoEdge, right? And uh, it's okay. I mean, so I don't know. In hindsight, I think we're very, very proud of all the, all the decisions that we made. And uh, I think we have the right kind of advice. People don't push us to overspend whatever we've got. So I think it's a, I think it's a great team. We don't have formal board meetings. Everybody trusts each other quite a bit. I can I can cancel a board meeting two days in advance, saying that I'm having team motivation issues in this country and I need to travel and nobody bothers. Right? So there's a lot of trust on the table. And uh, had I had we gone gone with that guy even for 30, even if even if we had pushed that person to 30 instead of 25, I would never be able to trust that person. Right? And even the other way around wouldn't happen. And that would be a that would that could have been the start of the end of Zomato. Right? So. Um, you've scaled across so many countries now, and apart from hiring the right people, how do you succeed in these specific markets in terms of understanding culture and how people behave? So this is a very recent learning, not saying that we have always been doing that, but uh, the only way to succeed when something is not in front of your eyes is to literally give it to someone and say that it's yours to run. Call me if you run into any trouble, but don't call me. Right. So when one once you give people that kind of ownership about for a business, that's when magic happens. If you get on a weekly update call with someone, it becomes a reporting relationship, and people don't take ownership anymore. So you have to let people lose. Right. And 
there's a cost of letting people lose as well. So you will lose 25% of the markets, right? But that's okay. Even if you can be a runaway success in 75% of the markets that you actually try to expand into, that's, that's fair game. But uh, your only fair shot at even getting that 75% success rate is to totally and completely depend on someone to do the job and not micromanage anything at all. Hi. <clears throat> okay, so I have a very simple question. You mentioned about uh, the genuine guys losing out in this whole run for, uh, you know, funding, fundraising, and people wanting to burn money more than they make. Uh, so, what really happens to these genuine guys? You know, uh, how do you, how do VCs find them out? Uh, how does a person like you find them out? hard question because if there were clear answers to this, none of these problems would actually exist, right? So, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think if these, uh, if these genuine guys, as you would say, or like healthy companies is what I actually call them, these companies, if they persist, they win. What the, the most, the biggest mistake these companies make is they think that they also fall into the trap thinking that funding money solves all their problems, right? Actually, it doesn't. Money only solves one problem, and that's money. And sometimes money makes you do stupid things. For, e for example, one of our competitors had a 100-person marketing team, okay? For online ordering business in India only. Okay? We have a four-person marketing team globally for like five businesses, 23 countries, okay? And uh, this four-person team actually probably ends up doing a better job than those than all those guys out there. So I think just sticking to your basics, these healthy companies win. Sometimes they don't, but there, there are always those chances. Hi, Dipinder. So uh, I, um, as I was listening to your talks, you know, so I've, I have two questions. One was, uh, if you're planning to go global, so how can you sell that vision to your investors? You know, like, it's like some companies are already scaled very well in a particular region, then you go to an investor and say that now we can go global. Or if you want to go global and your product is so good that you can go to different countries, then can you sell that vision in a manner to an investor? Sir, I would say that uh, do not build a business for investors, right? So. Keep on building, and one day people will believe in what you're building. I can confidently say that out of the 23 countries we are in, so, so 18 we are the leaders in, let's just consider those 18. We don't get any value for, we don't get any value for 15 out of them, right? I think uh, Zomato is very highly undervalued right now, and uh, we don't get, actually we don't get any, any credit for being leaders in 15 out of those markets. I'll give you very simple reasons why. People, so we are in Lebanon, okay? And uh, we have like very high traffic levels in Lebanon as well. And there's only one city in Lebanon, which is Beirut. Now, Beirut has half the number of restaurants in Delhi, but the currency is like 4x of Indian rupee. Okay, so Beirut, the market size is twice of Delhi. But 
investors have a very different worldview of things. They they think that population is equal to market size. That's not true for your. That's not true for our sector. For us, the number of restaurants into the currency strength is actually the market size, right? So we don't get any value for 15 out of them. And and I don't even want to explain this to a lot of people, right? So there's some people who know this, and they and they keep giving us like money as and when we need it. So that's that's okay, right? And uh, maybe four or five years from now, when we think of going public, like revenue will be at 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 its peak in some of these markets. That's when we'll get the fair value out of these things. It's okay. I mean, there's there's no point optimizing like a couple of hundred million dollars here and there right now. That's true. Thank you. And one more thing is, you know, when you're doing early rounds, for example, pre-Series A or Series A, one is trust, as you mentioned. Anything else based on your experience that we can, you know, an entrepreneur can look into an investor that should, that we will meet right on the lunch table or we'll meet and we, we can create a company with the right core values? So for us, it's always been about the people. Like, and uh, we don't care about anything else. A lot of times we were told that uh, you should get money from people who can follow up with much larger rounds later on. That's partly true, but if your fundamentals are right, you'll you'll get those guys. Like so, it doesn't really matter, right? So do not build a business for how the world works around funding. And uh, at 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 any given point in time, do not build a business thinking that the next round will definitely come in. Okay, it might not. And uh, if you if you actually ramp up the burn rate, thinking that I'll get the next round, <coughs> and the next round doesn't come. That's the end of everything. Right? So whatever money you got in the bank, think that that's the last check you're getting. Build the business, and, and one day while you're building the business, and one more check will come in. That's when you ramp up the spend. Don't even, and don't ramp up the spend before the money hits the bank. Signing term sheets or even discussing SHAs doesn't mean anything. The money should get to the bank. Things can go wrong five minutes before they are supposed to wire the money. The China market could crash five minutes before they're able, they're they're wiring the money, and you'll not get the money. So 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 be that real about everything. Uh, hi, uh, here. Yeah. So you said that there is no problem with food tech companies as such. It's with the businesses. So what is what is with the business model that is going wrong, and what have you experienced in your business model that m might have went gone wrong? So uh, I said there's no problem in the food tech sector in general. The problem is with these companies or uh, businesses. What I mean is that the business models are all right, but they're being executed in a bad way. So it's just that, nothing else. And uh, if these guys were fundamentally uh, Okay about their costs and like the way they're trying to like get into the market. Those businesses would actually do well and thrive and survive as well. But yeah, you can't spend half of your seed round on an office here. Come on. So, so did you experience the same thing? Sorry. Did, ha, did you also experience a similar problem? Not really. I mean, we have been here for almost seven and a half years now. We know how this works, right? And and our cost structures and everything, they're highly leveraged across various businesses. So it doesn't really affect us that much. But uh, bootstrapping or, for example, like, sorry, like starting a company in the online ordering space, it's very high burn. So And uh, you have to do a certain things right. 
a couple of our competitors, they're like starting off, they are doing things right. And I have very high levels of respect for those guys. But uh, that's, actually, that's actually competition you want to fight, fight with, right? So just, just fighting money is not fun at all. So fighting good people is a lot more fun than fighting a lot of money. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, hi, Dipinder. Uh, you made it sound so simple, uh, the whole journey. And we, we actually, we get uh, misled when you say it so simply. What are the toughest things which you had to go through in your journey? Yeah, the toughest thing is to keep it simple. <laughs> <laughs> right? And uh, we could complicate it way too much, saying, well, do this, I'll do that. I mean, for example, we don't even have proper analytics set up on our website and mobile products. Like, we don't need that. We grow anyway. We just like, we just think of our own products as users and try to do the right things. Growth happens, right? So don't, don't listen to people who are trying to sell you their products, okay? Be very, very real about your own product. Know, be your own user, and, and you will grow. Be very, very real. No jazz. Cut down on all the jazz. I think it's as simple as that. But doing that is very, very hard. Thanks so much. Hello. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, Deepan. Yeah, to your left or right. Yeah. Uh, my name is Sunil. Uh, I just have three questions. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, I'll, I'll try to be uh, short. Uh, number one is uh, shortest question. How do you fight uh, fake reviews and spam for restaurants? Fake reviews. Uh, and how do uh, restauranters react to that? And what is your uh, take on that? Hmm. Great question, yeah. There are some problems you just cannot solve, okay? Um, oh, this is one of them. No, this is not one of them. I'll tell you the problem that you, that you cannot solve. The problem in our business that you cannot solve is restaurant owners always complaining about a review or the other. Okay? They will never complain about the good ones which are fake. They will always complain about the bad ones which are fake. And uh, we do get a lot of fakes, and we almost always know which one is a fake. Okay, we have been doing this for way too long, like sentiment analysis, this that, like so, and like IP address patterns, timing patterns, like there's there's a lot of stuff you can do to determine fakes. The bad part about us being us is that we can't delete those fakes. I'll tell you why. As soon as we delete those fakes, first of all somebody will start crying that uh, we deleted their review. And I happen to be one of them. And, 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 then, and then it will just like travel far and wide, and people will stop trusting Zomato because we deleted a review. They don't get the context or the, like, the, full, like, the whole bigger picture of why we deleted that review. And uh, when we delete stuff, we do delete stuff, we actually delete more than what is required. So sometimes we end up deleting like fair reviews as well. But that's what our system tells us, right? And, and our aim is to make sure that only the reviews which, are, which have a very high level of, which, where we have a very high level of confidence, stay on top. Okay, so reviews get, de get deleted sometimes. But most of the reviews, we actually hide them. We don't delete them, okay? Collapse. I'll, I'll tell you what, how that works. There's a popular reviews tab on Zomato. There's all reviews. 
popular and all. Reviews where we have a fair bit of confidence that they're, they're good and they're true, we'll keep them in the popular ones. And everything else will like push it off into the all. Now all these spammers think, think that the reviews are still there, okay? As soon as you delete them, they will try, they will spam you even more. So you can't delete, you have to, you have to make them think they're winning, okay? So keep them in the all reviews, but our users never switch to the all reviews tab. Like 99.5% people just stay on the popular review section. So this is how we tackle spam. And it's, a, and it's a very tough line to walk. So sometimes we end up making mistakes as well. And we get killed for it. Okay. But under, under no circumstances does it make any long-term business sense for us to delete a review for a client which is paying us. It just doesn't make sense. If a restaurant is asking us to delete a review which is actually bad because he's paying us, that restaurant is not going to last for more than six months anyway. So it's okay. Let that business go. Okay. Uh, second question was, mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm a fan of uh, Zomato marketing to say, uh, especially the way you run, uh, uh, you know. That's uh, only one single guy, Akshar Pathak. <laughs> uh, no, no, uh, it's not about that. Uh, the way you uh, collaterals are on Facebook and stuff like that. Uh, Again, uh, just structure Pathak. No, no. Uh, <laughs> if you can just brief us on how Zomato marketing works. Uh, is it like you have uh, a brief target audience and a call to action? or Because generally, uh, consumer companies want to have a click, want to have a call to action or uh, you know, something to take away. Say, buy now, or join us, or check out. Generally, Zomato. Uh, marketing material doesn't have any of that. You don't even say visit our website to say. Maybe we're doing it wrong, but you're a fan, so I don't think we're doing it wrong. But, uh, but we don't optimize that much. We do what we want to do, we have fun. And I mean, our posts get sometimes like 10 million reach, right? So yeah. if that's the kind of reach we're getting out of not having an action button, so be it, it's fine. But right? so uh, obviously the marketer will have uh, a responsibility of uh, Converting that into conversions, or we don't have any of those things. So uh, we are from Punjab. Yeah, we don't we don't look at these things that way. So <laughs> that's nice. Uh, thank you. And uh, just one last question. Uh, one last question. Uh, uh, just this is, uh, this, this question has an assumption that uh, India is one of the biggest revenue generator for Zomato uh, because of geography and population and hotels wise. Mm -hmm. Uh, if that's the case, why didn't uh, Zomato go to China, uh, which is also very large populated and so Are many restaurants? China? We're not in China, man. Yeah, uh, why not? Uh, I'm almost like, we're not in China, we're not going to China. No, so just, it's just, just I, I didn't complete <laughs> It's just a very large market with people who have billion dollars in their bank. You don't walk into markets with four people with billion dollars each in their bank. Stay out of those markets. There are a lot more other markets where you have a much bigger shot at winning, right? And do not, do, do, do not walk into China like, like, like yeah. that. The last point, uh, mm -hmm. when you're considering entering new markets, do you consider uh, tourism of that country also? Because if there are more tourists to a country, obviously more people will, out, will eat outside. So do you consider that also as one of no, the No, we points? don't. Uh, touristy markets are actually very hard for us to run. The case in point is Goa, for example. Okay. okay. Uh, usage in Goa has always been a challenge for us because locals don't eat out, and uh, customer acquisition on the tourist part is very, very hard. Right. So, 
and our business actually thrives on locals using the product multiple times in a month or like multiple times in a week. We don't have a very large, unique user base, but the frequency at which that user base uses Zomato is very, very high, and that's what keeps the business working for us. So tourists is not tourists belong to TripAdvisor, and they handle that, and we handle the locals. So it's very, very clear between both of us. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, I had two simple questions. So one thing I was always curious about is. Uh, Whenever we check out, I'm a huge fan of Zomato. I use Zomato a lot. So primarily, as a, from a consumer point of view, there are two main questions that come into mind. One is, which is the place we have to go to? Second is, what is the dish we want to try out? Right? And if I'm not mistaken, you have that feature on your website where you recommend what are the popular dishes. Like Swiggy recommends particular dishes from a restaurant, but Zomato doesn't do it in the app. So why is that? Must be a bug. <laughs> <laughs> It genuinely must be a bug. Somebody is getting fired today. <laughs> <laughs> must be a bug, and I think uh, we we should have already fixed it. Like okay. these so things, I, I these know, things get the noticed very very quickly. Okay, so you have that feature. Yeah, we have that feature. Okay, so and uh, this feature is actually driven by user reviews more than the restaurant owners telling what they want to sell. So it's actually much more uh, much more relevant information for you than anybody else. And secondly, uh, I think when you tried out a lot of revenue streams. Uh, you might have tried multiple streams of revenue mm -hmm. and then you mm -hmm. fixed on the banner ads. Mm -hmm. Can you shed some more light on why, what were the insights that you got? Like you could have chosen other streams of revenue as well, in, in addition to banner ads. But why did you just stick to the simple banner ad model of revenue? It, there wasn't much, actually. We tried, um, so early days, it used to be very hard for us to make revenue online because Restaurant owners, we had to educate them here. Internet, aise chalta hai. like our salespeople used to take them to laptop, like to stores and like buy laptops for those guys and educate them on how Zomato works. Like that's the that's what we used to face in like 2010. And uh, to make some money and keep the business running during those times, we we did those print guides, like the connoisseur's guide to eating out, and it's. It's so much. It's it's actually a lot more easy for for traditional businesses to give money for print than for online ads. So for a couple of years, we made money on print. Right. We we made money on print. We spent it on online, right? So like to grow our product online, and over time we shifted the market to online. Why not some kind of a? Maybe you guys would have tried it out, but why not some kind of a loyalty program or a backend analytics for the restaurant to see? That's a lot of hard work here. So. So this is this this i mean i'm saying in addition to uh, the so, already worked so see on. we can out of the out of the 18 markets we are strong in yes. we can get to 1 billion dollars of ad revenue okay ad, and why would we not do that first so we shouldn't be we shouldn't be creative for the heck of being crea being creative right so there's something that works first milk it like get it to as far as possible and Keep analyzing the markets that if some trend is changing, like if something can hurt you, then do then do those things. But have one one strain of thought and actually milk it very, very well first. Hi, the question. Uh, as a founder, somebody who's taking care of so many teams together, how do you keep uh, off the distractions as a I'm I'm somebody who believes in productivity, who wants to understand how pro founders, you know, keep themselves productive. So how do you keep off distractions, and what's your routine like every day? Here, I am uh, very fortunate to have a team of five people around me who 
don't let those distractions come to me. Okay, so and just like a lot of noise hits you every day, I don't see it because it just like gets filtered out, and um, I get stuff which I should be doing. And I have a and I've and I've and you can't you can't have this team on day one, right? It takes years for you to build those teams, and um, and I think now we are at a very good place where the chemistry between this team is like very very good. Everybody knows what to handle, what not to handle, what comes to me, what doesn't. So everybody is very, very productive. And uh, I, I, I get a reasonable amount of mind space uh, because of that team. Otherwise, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to. Routine, um, I would classify it as, uh, I mean, in general, founders should always think of uh, splitting their time into things that they want to do and things that they need to do. Right, so there, there, there are only two ways to split your time, and uh, I think I'm spending half my time doing things I need to do, half the time I'm spending things I want to do, and uh, I mean six months ago I used to be spending hundred percent of my time doing things I wanted to do, right, and 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 in hindsight I think uh, that's where we lost the plot a little bit as well, right? So we're all doing things we wanted to do, and we're not doing the things that we needed to do. But now uh, things are back on track, and we're firing on all cylinders again. Hi, Dipinder. Last question. So, uh, yeah, Mahendra here. Uh, so thanks for uh, your frank and humble ch chat. So one billion dollar revenue is quite of money. So we should buy Nokri share, or we should wait for Zomato IPO? <laughs> if you only want 50% of the upside of Zomato, you should buy Nokri shares. <laughs> If you want to have the complete upside of Zomato, you should buy Zomato. Uh, uh, sir, would you share your journey with uh, Mr. Sanjeev? How did you meet him? And because most of the people over here are young startups, they actually scout for their first mentors. I think that is very important part that most of the people miss on the stage. So please, I would like you to tell your journey and some suggestions that how to find the first mentor. Yeah, so I have a uh, I have a very fundamental belief that uh, you shouldn't listen to people a lot. Okay, mentors are good, but uh, it's a it's a downward slope when you start doing what those guys recommend you to do. I'll tell you why. Because what Sanjeev believes in is what worked for him in his market at that time with his people. We're living in a very different world. Every startup is a is a completely different game of chess. So you can't replicate learnings from, I mean, even all the stuff that I'm telling you right now, you can't replicate that in your startup, right? So you have to you have to filter out a lot of stuff and then see what really applies to you, what doesn't apply to you. For example, if I'm saying that the analytic stuff we don't do, maybe because we have a team which is intuitive enough in terms of product to not, so for that we don't have to do that. Right? But if your product team is not that strong or not that intuitive, maybe you need to get into those details. So you have to take everything with a pinch of salt. So now, so Sanjeev literally happened to us, okay? And um, because I come with that thing here, mentors are okay, they're, they're not life-changing. I, I, I actually didn't even know who Sanjeev was before Sanjeev emailed me. 
Okay, so th this was back in 2010, and Sanjeev emailed me saying that, um, hey, good stuff with Foodie Bay, would love to chat, Sanjeev. Okay, and back in those days, we used to get a lot of emails from salespeople. Okay, and and I thought this is this is an email from a salesperson, and we're launching launching Bangalore back then, and I was busy for like three days, complete night outs, and uh, I archived that email, thinking this is a sales email. And uh, three days later, like that email sort of stuck with me, and so that there was a certain bit of certain bit of authority in that email that wasn't a sales email. So I looked up and looked up Sanjeev, and then I was like, shit, like <laughs> the founder of Nokri, and I thought it was a sales email, and uh, I emailed him back. Uh, this was at about 2 a.m. in the night, we're doing night outs, saying Sanjeev would love to catch up. Please let me know when. Okay, that night I was working till like 6 a.m. I slept at 6, and uh, so so Sanjeev would have woken up at 7. He emailed, "Come meet me at 9." Okay, I didn't see that email, <laughs> so I woke up at 1, and uh, I emailed back, "Sorry, had a late night," and uh, blah blah blah. He said, "Come meet me at 3." No, just woken up. I got from Gurgaon to Noida. I was there on time. And uh, so, so that's how things happen here. I mean, if you, you shouldn't plan for a lot of these things. They should just happen to you. Right? So let, let everything come, come to you and just focus on doing good work. That's all that matters. If you start looking out for these things and these things don't happen, you blame your failures on not having these things. And, and these, are, these are not the reasons why you would fail. You would fail because you're not focusing on the right things, which is actually getting your job done. Make sense? Cool, so that's pretty much. So will you be around? Will you be around for some time? Five minutes. I have a flight to catch after. <laughs> All right, so thanks, Dipinder. Thanks for thanks, coming Ashish. over. Thanks, Ashish. Thanks for having me here. It was good fun in Bangalore. Good fun. So